Welcome to Safety Spectrum, your environmental health and safety connection. This program is a presentation of the Michigan Safety Conference. For almost a century, the annual conference has provided credible educational opportunities and valuable support to the safety and health practitioner by offering 120 instructional programs, along with exhibits highlighting the latest in safety equipment, instrumentation, and demonstrations. To learn more about the conference, please find us at MICH, M-I-C-H, safetyconference.org. Welcome to Safety Spectrum. I'm your host, Sheila Eide. This program is sponsored by the Michigan Safety Conference, which is bringing EHS training, exhibits, and demonstrations to Michigan for over 90 years. Our topic today is dealing with difficult people with our guest, Marilyn Knight. Marilyn received her degrees from the University of Michigan and Wayne State University and is the project director of the Center for Workplace Violence Prevention, Inc. for the past 25 years. The center has been a recipient of MIOSHA consultation grants to develop individual workplace violence trainings and policies for over 1,500 Michigan companies. She's also written and produced two DVDs on workplace violence prevention in managing workplace emergencies and disasters. Ms. Knight is president of her own company, M. Knight Consultants, Prior to starting her own company, she was president, CEO of the incident management team for 21 years. Her role in these companies was in global crisis management, security, violence prevention, program development, and consulting. Ms. Knight has assisted critical incident stress management activities after the World Trade Center terrorist bombing, the Oklahoma Alfred Murrow building bombing, and US Postal Service mass shootings. As a lecturer and trainer in the areas of workplace violence prevention, crisis response, and organizational change, she has presented at conferences and seminars worldwide and conducts seminars at Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marilyn. Seems to me you've been around for some of people's worst moments in life. Actually, I have. Um, and it's been, it's been an honor, actually to be able to be there and to help people deal with some of these most horrific events that we've all heard of. The other thing that it has done is it has increased and enhanced my own appreciation for how important it is to be able to prevent situations from escalating to the point where someone loses control of their impulse behavior and acts out in a way that results in tissue damage or homicide. And so that's why this particular subject that we're looking at today is close to my heart. And I think it's very important for all of us to prevent that degree of violence where there is some foreseeability. And many of those huge cases like the World Trade Center and the Alfred Muro bombing in Oklahoma City there were not perhaps, they're, they're different from what we're talking about today. But today is looking at those instances where we have some influence or control over how they escalate or de-escalate. And so I think it's a very valuable thing for, for people of all walks of life and in all industries. You talk about impulse behavior. What is your definition of that? We're not always that way. Is that how I'm understanding that? Um, I'm sorry, I need you to ask there. What kind of behavior? Impulse behavior. What is your definition of that? Well, our definition, my definition for that, for impulse behavior, is that, yeah, it's 
people may not always be um, aggressive or violent or threatening, but something happens that precipitates their impulse to operate or function in that way. And because we may not be accustomed to their behaving that way, or because that kind of behavior, if it's someone I don't even know, that kind of behavior um, creates and precipitates my own fight or flight reaction. And I respond from an emotional perspective that might exacerbate their behavior rather than taking the energy and anger out of the interaction. I'm thinking uh, now that we've all been out of the office, many of us for over a year, what do you see as challenges to people trying to transition back into working with other people? Oh, I see myriad uh, issues and problems and trying to, to get back. Among them are the simple fact that people have been out of practice for all of that human interaction, dealing with people um, in their work relationship on a person-to-person -person basis, as opposed to as we're doing now, remotely. Um, and the fact that um, many people's finances have been negatively impacted by this being out of the work. Their, um, their personal, interpersonal skills may not be as sharp as they were. Um, we've had some, some really sad things happening, I think they're sad to me, among people in our country. We have become so divided on so many different aspects and um, it, it's, creating, it's creating conflict among friends, among families, um, among colleagues. And we can't just leave all of those strong personal values and beliefs at home. People have a tendency to bring them with them and they're going to bring them back into the workplace as well. So I think that's going to be a real challenge for the work environment to, to resume and to develop those workplace relationships so that people can maintain whatever personal beliefs they want to have, but they just don't allow them to affect the effectiveness and the personal relationships within the work environment. From, from a personal standpoint, I know that I've lost people over the past year due to the COVID and certain celebrations or things that we're used to attending, those have gone away. And, but even when someone passes that you can't have a funeral or you can't hold a wedding or you can't have a graduation. I mean, the children that have been out of school the last two years, it's got to be horrendous for them. But then I think we turn to social media. Do you think social media has an impact on this divisiveness that you talk about? Oh, it absolutely does. And, and what you talk about with all of the losses and the the, uh, the losses are people, of course, but also of our rituals, our, our funerals, our weddings, the retirement parties, the, you know, people moving across, moving out of the area after they've retired and left the workforce. Those have all been significant losses for all of us. It has changed our lives dramatically. And now I, I think it's going to be not realistic to believe that we're all going to just immediately step back into those old lives as if nothing has happened. 
there's going to be some, um, some time that we're going to need to regain that equilibrium and to establish uh, uh, you know, things that we're going to do. We're going to have to reestablish uh, relationships and, um, and workplace identities and our lives outside the workplace and how they now mesh with one another because it's going to be different than it was two years ago. Absolutely. I mean, our social structures have kind of been destroyed, you know, somewhat. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, how can you tell if someone is likely to become, well, violent or overreact to a situation since we are, we're missing the cues, I guess, right now? Right. Um, you know, and I wish there were a, I could give you a checklist that, well, they do this, 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 and this, you know that they're definitely going to be. Um, that's not uh, usually the case. What I encourage people to do, especially for people that they work with or they provide services to or they have some uh, or they receive services from. And that is that when we're interacting with someone, we need to recognize um, what signals they may be sending us that are indicative of the fact that they may lose control of their impulse behavior. And we, we need to train ourselves but, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not always just, well, if someone says this or if someone makes a threat or if someone says they have a weapon or if someone, that does not mean that, that everything needs to be ratcheted up. But they're sending us signals of their vulnerability or of their anger, their frustration, their difficulty in dealing with life. And we're sending our reactions back to them. And so it's that inter, interpersonal interaction that can either focus, that can either de-escalate the interaction so that it does not erupt in violence, or we can continue to almost throw, throw gasoline on the flame, which increases the possibility or the propensity of that person to lose control of their impulse behavior. And so I think it, that's why it behooves us to learn, one, how to read signs from someone who has um, uh, behaved in a way that is frightening or that makes me think they might become uh, violent, and to control my own behavior so that I don't inadvertently send them the wrong message and have the wrong or the outcome that I do not want to happen happen. Um, you, I don't know if you can liken it to you have been there so often after a crisis, after something terrible has happened, a terrorist bombing, a shooting, what have you. What do you hear from the folks that were there after the fact? How do they, do you see some of those signs even in our interactions with people where, where were there signs there and they just didn't recognize them? Um, you know, almost always, almost always people say, you know, he said he was going to do this, or they'd been having problems for a long time. I just never believed they would really do it, especially if it's someone that you know or you work with, and you see a certain kind of behavior that they engage in. They may have a short fuse, as we sometimes refer to it. They may have resentments of certain people or certain positions in the organizations, they may feel that they're not treated fairly, and they may verbalize those problems or those feelings. Um, 
but people become, uh, they become immune to them. They say, well, that's the way she always is. That's the way Marilyn always is. She's just mad. She'll just blow off steam. She'll get over it. She'll be okay. And we don't take that kind of behavior as seriously as we should. But in situations where it's been, especially where there have been um, workplace violence or active shooter incidents or and the person was a known entity to that organization or people within the organization, almost invariably, there is a sense that they said they would do this. I never really believed they would. That's that's the sad part. Uh, when I was a personnel director, I put together policies that would send out signal words. I knew I was gonna deal with a difficult situation or a person, so I would say I need file 18 or something, which would uh, alert the people waiting outside that maybe get the police, have this or that. I had one incident where a gentleman was carrying back in the many, many years ago when people didn't automatically carry, have a concealed weapons license and they knew that he had it. And people were very nervous about that. So I had to have a discussion with someone who I know was carrying a weapon. Uh, it went fine, but I did have a police officer standing by out of sight so we wouldn't agitate anything. And it was fine, we got through it. But I know there are a lot of companies don't even think that that kind of thing could ever happen here. I think that's what you're saying. We, we like to believe that it will never happen here. Um, I understand that. I think that's human behavior. Um, but I think it, it is incumbent upon us to accept the fact that all of these other places didn't think it would happen there either. And therefore we have to be um, proactive and reactive in a way that does every single thing that is humanly possible to make sure that it does not happen, not here, not to my workplace, not to my work family. Though I'm sure you still get resistance when you're trying to work with a company that they actually need these kind of policies in place. Um, sometimes, but not often. Usually they call me because they, um, they usually they call because they have a, a situation and they're not sure how to deal with it. And they're concerned that um, it might result in someone acting out and someone become getting hurt or killed. And the person has not technically crossed a line that allows them to take disciplinary action, or they're afraid that if they take disciplinary action, that might precipitate the person acting out. So they usually call because they want someone to come in and defuse the situation, which is usually what I do when I first get a call from an employer or a union, um, but then I try to talk to them about the need for, and at that point, the need for developing um, training, processes, procedures, um, to make sure that these situations don't arise in the future. And um, they're usually at often open to that because they have seen how close they came and they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. I know that you were involved with the Royal Oak uh, shootings at the post office, and it seemed to be the beginning of all of this, or am I just being naive? Is it, has it gotten worse over the years? I mean, that's the one that really sticks in my mind. Um, you know, I, 
we've had, yeah, I think it has gotten worse. It's kind of like, I use the analogy of Pandora's box. You know, once you, there were times, I, I know when I was a child, I never, it never occurred to me that anyone would ever come into a school and go on a shooting rampage. That was just, that was unheard of. However, once someone did, it became, it became more common. It has become much more frequent than we ever would have considered. And that's why I think prevention is, is a critical piece because people will say to me, how do we stop these active shooters from occurring? How do we stop these school shooters from going out? How do we, and I think, you know what? The best thing we can do is develop systems and processes and procedures and train the infrastructure internally so that, so that we have an indication that something could happen and we take the appropriate intervention to prevent that something, something from occurring. Because to think we're going to stop it all together, it's, it's in my mind, again, I use that analogy of trying to put Pandora back in the box and close the lid. I don't think that's an option for us. I think preparedness and training, practice, um, and sensitivity of our workforce is, is what we need to be looking at. What, what are some other strategies we as individuals can kind of help mitigate the situation or identify uh, possible problems? I mean, just the rank and file person who works next to someone, there are folks that are fired up all the time or vehement about everything or have an opinion about everything. and doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do anything. So how do you know the difference? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I think that's why we need to do the training in that internally, because we need the people who work in a specific organization or location, they need to be sensitive to, oh, so-and-so is just blowing off steam versus, you know what? That made me uncomfortable. It had, a, this, uh, had an effect on me, and um, I don't think it would be wise for me to just ignore that and pretend it didn't happen. And the organization can then look at stepping in and helping that person help themselves or resolve situations that may be brewing and boiling within the organization that they hadn't been aware of or that they figured would work themselves out. And one of the things, the most, some of the most critical things, I think, within an organization and their training is training people who will be um, either in the front line, such as managers, supervisors, union representatives, on how to intervene, how to um, uh, react to someone who's making people uncomfortable or feeling as if this person might lose control. And so giving people education and training, uh, I think is very valuable in helping prevent it from actually occurring. So I get what it would make sense then is you would you provide these policies or work with a company, consult with a company, and then train everyone. So no one is, you know. Oh, absolutely. Ideally. Uh, but you're you're going to have to train most people. In, in a much smaller, the, the rank and file employees would not have probably as um, in-depth 
or as extensive training in verbal de-escalation and personal safety skills as would managers, supervisors, human resource people, and union leadership. Um, but everyone needs to know what to do or who to tell. So you would at least do train, I assume, of uh, if you're not comfortable with the situation, what do I do? That those yeah. rules should be real clear and put out to everyone so that they understand what their options are. Absolutely. Now that we've ID'd some of the characteristics, uh, what are some personal safety strategies we can use to prevent violence from actually occurring once we've ID'd the person? Um, that's an excellent question. And I would hope that that's where many of the people who are watching this would pick it up and incorporate this information in their own, in their own life. Uh, first and foremost, we have to become students of human behavior. We have to become students of my behavior as well as how to assess and evaluate other people's behavior so that I can um, evaluate when a situation may be getting to the point where someone may lose control and uh, what kinds of things I need to do at that time to prevent that from happening. For one thing, we need to understand how communication occurs. Now, we often think that, well, of course it occurs. I say something to you and you understand what I mean. That's not exactly the case. There are three primary ways in which communication occurs. The first is visual, or what we often refer to as body language. And then there is the uh, vocal tone, the impact, the inflection, the timbre, the volume. 7% of communication is a result of the actual words that are used. 55% of communication is a result of the body language, the nonverbal. 38% is the result of the voice tone and the timbre that people use. And if we ever have any confusion about what the person is, where they're coming from or what their, um, what their impact is or what they intend for it to be, people will always, always believe visual and vocal before they believe the actual words that are being used. Is that a subconscious thing that we do without even realizing we're doing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we realize that, say, if someone were to get in my face and they started yelling and they're pounding the desk or the table in front of them, I pay more attention to that than to what they're actually saying. And I tend to respond to that. And many times, and we're talking about in the workplace, we say, you can't come in here and do that kind of stuff. You get out of my, that only exacerbates it. What I need to do is pay attention, force myself to listen to what it is they're actually saying so that I can respond to that in a way that takes that energy and anger out before they lose the, their, their impulse control. And what I often do if I don't, if I don't have the skills or I don't utilize those techniques, inadvertently, without meaning to, I am in effect throwing, throwing kerosene onto a, a fire until it gets boom. And the person says or does something, picks something up, throws it at me, grabs me. Something happens that we very possibly could have prevented 
had we dealt with the situation differently. That's why I said students of human behavior, and that's one of the first. And this, by the way, this information is useful in reducing the potential for violence, and we're looking at the workplace, but it is applicable in all of our human interactions with your spouse, your significant other, your kids, the cranky um, uh, player, uh, person that's working at one of the stores, um, uh, a waitress or waiter or bartender, or so, whatever you are. This information is useful in our entire lives. And the more, the quicker we learn to use it and to read people and how to interact with them in a way that gets them to calm down or to not be angry or to um, cooperate with me, the smoother my entire life is gonna fall. I know that we've all heard certain techniques for diffusing a situation. I, one that I think you and I talked about was uh, the tone of voice, uh, lowering the voice, raising the voice. How, how would you, you said not to just immediately change the timber, it might set them off even more. So how would you suggest you do that? Okay. Um, as an example, we all know that when someone is yelling at us, if we try to yell over them, they tend to get louder, correct? Right. Well, we take that information, that knowledge of human behavior, and use it to our advantage. So if the person is yelling at me at this volume, I definitely don't want to yell at them back up here because they're going to get louder and overtop me. And the more energy would they pour into their anger and expressing themselves, the less control they have of their behavior. So when they're yelling at me at this volume, I want to talk back to them here. Most people think we want to talk to them very, very, very softly. Like they're yelling and screaming. I want to say something like, you know, now listen, I want to hear your problem, but I don't want you to yell and Not the case. That works for very young children because they're curious little creatures and they'll get quiet to hear what you're saying. It does not work for angry adults. They usually interpret that kind of response as you're discounting or you're not really paying attention to what they're trying to convey to me. So they're yelling here. I want to talk to them at this volume. Just like they tend to get higher if I outshout them, they will also come down and get lower. They'll match my volume. Then I'm gonna talk a little softer to them and they're gonna come down. And then a little softer and more and more and more, I'm getting them out of their screaming rage and back to a rational adult in a normal voice tone. And I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but I find that easiest things to remember are the ones that pop up when I need them desperately. Mm -hmm. I use for this technique. Remember the old, the old uh, song in a, when I was a kid? It was a little bit softer now, a little bit softer now. That's what I try to think about when someone is yelling at me. I'm going to get a little softer, a little softer until I get them down to a normal speaking volume. And then I'll have a much better opportunity to connect with them person to person. Makes sense. What, when do you decide that you have to disengage entirely when it's going to just, you can't control the situation? I mean, um, yeah. a lot of that's going to depend if and when you can. 
Um, the other thing is that, you know, I constantly, I, I switch from one technique to another uh, because one, one thing does not work with all people. So if I feel like a technique is not having the effect that I want it to have, I stop using that. Or if it's having the opposite effect, if I do or say something to this person and they seem to get more agitated, I stop doing what I'm doing and take another tool out of my people toolkit. This is why I, I suggest that this is not a one size fits all. We need multiple tools, multiple techniques, so that when something's not working and we have the opportunity to read these people, we, we know to stop doing something that's exacerbating their frustration or anger and try something else. Of course, all the time, if I, if I think it's not working, I also would be doing things that would put me in a position to escape if I needed to. Oh, okay. One, yeah, one would be um, putting a little bit of space between us. I, I think I talked yesterday about showing the open hands. That's a nonverbal clue that says, I'm not armed, I'm not dangerous, I'm not going to hurt you. Please don't hurt me. The other thing is to make sure that I am closest to the means of escape as possible and, and that the person is not standing between me and the and the door or the, the hallway where I could go down. Now, I don't want to rush that because that might, that might precipitate something from him or her. But what I do want to do is it's a, it's a psychological concept called pacing and leading. There are many ways in which we can do it. We can pace and lead with our voice tone, our volume, the words we use. We can also pace and lead by very, slowly moving in a circular manner, taking just a couple of steps at a time so that it isn't obvious that I'm, that I'm trying to get over by the door, but just a few small baby steps and they will make those baby steps with me until finally I will be closer to the, to the way out of this room than they are. That will give me just so much more time to, to make my exit. If, I, if it gets to the point where I think I've got to get out of here, I cannot get control of this situation. An example of pacing and leading that people would be more familiar with is think about getting into a, um, an elevator. Okay? When you're really running late and the elevator hasn't for an important appointment, an elevator stops and it's quite crowded. You don't mind to kind of push your way in and that because you've got to get up to the fifth floor. However, when the elevator door opens and I get inside and there's only one or two other people, wherever I step, they will, I will set the pace and lead them and they will move farther away from me in the opposite direction. I did this in graduate school as a, um, as a social psychology experience. I wouldn't encourage everyone to do it, but it's kind of fun. You get into an elevator with just one person and they're standing, the elevator is a square. They're standing here, you get in the front. The door closes, you step back. They're gonna move over to the other side. 
if you move over just a baby step, they're going to move to the front. Pretty soon you're going to be waltzing with this person in the elevator. <laughs> and as soon as that door opens, they're scooting out of there, whether that's the floor they had originally selected or not, because that makes them uncomfortable. That's pacing and leading. And I use that to gain the advantage of having the exposure to be able to leave without that person impeding my exit. So we tend to mirror behavior, whether we know we're doing it or not. So it kind yes. of fits with what you said originally. That's fascinating. Yes. And you're right, an elevator, everybody, even if it's crowded, they tend to try to squeeze into their space or yes. move back, even if it's crowded, they, but, you know, so that we're not touching someone. So we all kind of know that innately, I think. But we don't, but we don't, we do know it innately. We just don't have the appreciation for how I can use that for my own personal safety. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, so and, and I think the easiest techniques are the ones that are, are, you're more likely to remember, they're more likely to, you know, I, I discourage until you, until you have mastered most of the lower level types of techniques that are really easy to do and easy to remember, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on learning judo and arm combat, those kinds of things. I think there are so many ways we can regain control of a potentially violent incident or situation that if we just practice them and practice them again in all of our relationships, don't wait until we have um, potentially violent situation about to explode on me and then say, oh shoot, what was that? What was that podcast I learned, I saw, and it was really good. What did they say to do? Use these techniques, make them part of your repertoire of human behavior. It can facilitate much more um, effective communication, much more effective relationships between people. If we can effectively deal with people who are having problems, and that's, that's just a human condition. In every workplace, some things happen that push my buttons or that make me angry. Or as we discussed yesterday, people have so many things going on in their own personal life that their ability to cope is not as strong as it usually is. Which kind of leads me into my next thought is what do we do ourselves when we have those negative situations or negative thoughts going on? What, what kind of things can we do to mitigate that? You know, very much. I think we become, again, as we're students of human behavior, my own as well as the other people, I have to learn when those things are happening with me and have a, a mitigation process or practice that I immediately employ so that I don't allow my emotions to be what drives my interaction, if, if they're negative emotions. So some of the other techniques that I, I would like to share that I think, again, because people, not everyone responds to the same exact way to the same techniques. Um, concept I call the ABCs of verbal diffusion or de-escalation. A is to acquire information. Have, get the person talking to me, asking questions, 
so that I can discern exactly what the issue is. Now, when I ask questions, I want to ask open-ended questions. I don't want to ask closed-end, like, when did this happen? Happened Thursday. What I want to do is I want to get that person to talk and put their emotions and what's creating the intensity within them into words so I can better understand where I want to focus my intervention. And also, the more people will talk about what's bothering them, what they're angry about, what's upsetting them, the more they can put it, get it out verbally, the less inclined they're going to have to act or will act um, physically. So I want to keep them talking. So I want to ask them open-ended questions. Can you, can you tell me how this all transpired and, and what was going on? So they're going to tell me their story. I'm listening with my second ear to what they're saying, the words they're using, um, the, the, the impact, their emotions that come up at certain stages. And that's going to tell me, I'm not going to go there first because that's an emotional trigger for this person. That's acquire information. B is boil it down. By that, I mean when people get upset or angry, whether it's at work, whether it's at, with a spouse, a significant other, or their kids, or their parents, we have a tendency to get global. I get into my anger and... And then suddenly I'm reminded of other things that have happened that perhaps you or this organization or my job or my career or whatever it is have also made me angry. And we tend to get global and, and pretty soon you're going and they've got all of these grievances that perhaps at the time were not big enough that they felt it was important enough to, to raise a stink. However, now that something has pushed their buttons, so to speak, every single thing that has happened that they have tolerated or that they haven't complained about or haven't written a grievance or haven't retaliated for, all comes rushing back and that's what they do. So I, we need to help them boil it down to what is the precipitant that is creating this frustration and anger with you right now and let me see if I can't resolve that or help you help you resolve it. And then C is clarify their expectation. One, I need to acquire information. Then I need to help them boil it down. And then I need to clarify. I don't want to make the assumption that, okay, they've told me what the problem is. I finally got it boiled down so I know what the precipitate for their anger is. I don't want to make the assumption that I know what they want done. I want them to help me understand what they think would be a reasonable or a realistic or a satisfying resolution to whatever this problem is. I want to engage them in identifying the, the, the fix for it because if I decide, well, this is what we need to do and that's how it'll fix the problem, that might be all right for me, but it may not really for them. Or if they're not engaged in, in what, they, 
the mediation or the fixture is going to be, they may not buy into it completely and they may not follow through with what I say they need to do. Something's a real problem for someone, they need to be invested in the solution if we're going to have any expectation that they're really going to follow through with what we come up with in the, at this meeting. And I think all of us can think of those kind of frustrating situations where you wish someone would just ask you what it is and what would make you feel better or make you satisfied with the solution. So you've given us some good techniques here. Uh, I really think that uh, dealing with people is what we're all supposed to be doing. And it seems like everybody's at a, a razor's edge at the moment about their feelings and emotions and trying to deal with each other again as we go back and have a normal life again, whatever normal can be. But I do think that your your ideas, your services are so critical these days to help us all get back to that that world that we can all get along with each other. And I would love to see that happen. So I really appreciate your time, Marilyn. This has been a great session. And if you would like uh, more information about this program, Marilyn, or the Michigan Safety Conference, please contact us at our email, mich, M-I-C-H, safetyconference.org. And thank you so much for listening to Safety Spectrum. <laughs>